in our new series that we're beginning today, that part one would feel probably more like a Bible study than it does a sermon. As I typically pick a verse, single passage of scripture, five, six verses long, however long it may be, and I typically walk through it verse by verse. But as I begin to prepare <laughs> for the subject matter, I realize that, well, in order to lay a foundation for what we're going to be talking about, I'm going to have to hit a variety of biblical passages. And then next week, we can go back into more of an expository style of preaching. But I just want to talk about the Holy Spirit. Most Christian homes, and if you've grown up in the church, uh, one of the first verses, if not the first verse you were ever taught, was John 3.16. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believeth, King James, that's how I memorized it, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's like a foundational Bible verse for every Christian home across the country because it highlights what Jesus did for us and the motivation for why he did it. But if you go into a Jewish household or if you go back into the world of the ancient Israelites and how they viewed the Bible prior to having the New Testament, they had a different foundational scripture. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Verse says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. This verse is taught to Jewish children as early as they can possibly comprehend it. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. What does this scripture mean and why does God command Moses to teach it to the children of Israel? This is what we call the monotheistic statement of faith. In the ancient world, so if you take Israel and then you look at the surrounding nations, you look at Egypt, you look at uh, the Assyrians, you look at the Babylonians, you look at all the surrounding regions in the ancient Near Eastern world on the map, all of them were polytheistic in their theology, meaning that all of them, without exception, believed in a multiplicity of gods. They believed in a pantheon in which there were a bunch of various deities. And when you read the Old Testament, you see this. You hear about the god Ashtaroth. And you hear about the god Dagon. And you hear about the Assyrian gods and the Egyptian gods and the Philistine gods. This is what the ancient world looked like. The Abrahamic faith. The people of the Israelites, the faith that they had was unique in that they were the only ones in the region 
who said that, no, there is only one God. This is why this verse is so foundational. Moses wanted the children of Israel to know we're not like the other nations. They have a multiplicity of deities that they worship before the descendant of Abraham. You need to understand here, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh alone. That's what it means to be one. It, it, it's, it's, it's a verse of comparing him to the other deities. He wanted them to know there is no other God but Yahweh. Yahweh is his name. He's the supreme creator. There's nobody else on his level. And you see this reflected throughout the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Isaiah. Now, what the verse does not explain is the complexities of God's oneness. When Moses said, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, the Hebrew there is achad, it does not mean absolute unity. He's not even trying to talk about that. He's talking about the uniqueness of Yahweh. In fact, when you read in the LEB, the Lexham English Bible, it literally says Yahweh is unique because that's what the word means. He's not dealing with the complexity of God's essence. He's not dealing with the nature of God. He's dealing with the uniqueness of God. In the mind of an ancient Israelite, Ahad, oneness, was complex. They believed in something that we call compound unity. This means that you can have one thing but that one thing can be made up of multiple parts. When you read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, it becomes clear as early as the first book of the first chapter of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And it says he called the light day. And he called the night darkness. And he separated the night. I'm sorry. He separated the light from the darkness. Then it says something that is missed in English. It says, and there was evening and morning the first day. In English it says, the first day. But in Hebrew it says there was evening and morning a hard day. One day. But it is made up of evening and morning. One day, but there are two parts that make up the one day. If evening does not have day, or if evening does not have morning, it's not a day. If morning does not have night, it's not a day. In order for a day to be a day, it needs two parts. It needs morning and it needs evening. That's the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. We see compound unity. Then you get to the second chapter. It says that God made Adam from the dust of the ground and out of Adam's side, he formed his wife Eve. Then in verse 25, the last verse of the chapter, he says, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one ahad flesh. So once again, you have two distinct persons, 
But the two distinct persons make up one flesh. The Bible describes Israel as God's one nation. But the nation consisted of thousands of Israelites. In the book of Exodus, God told Moses to build one tabernacle. But the tabernacle had a whole bunch of parts that made up the single tabernacle. In like manner, there is one Israelite God whose name is Yahweh. But he is made up of three co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in essence. One in substance, one in authority, one in the power, but distinct in personhood. It is from this biblical theological concept that we derive our doctrine of the Holy Trinity. We didn't get this from the Council of Nicaea. We didn't get this from church fathers. We ain't even get it from Paul. As early as the first book of the Bible, God reveals himself in this way. Some call it the Trinity. Some call it God's triunity. Some call it three in oneness. I prefer the term that I believe Dr. Michael Brown, Hebrew scholar, coined. He calls it the complex unity of Yahweh. He's one, but it's ain't, it ain't simple. <laughs> it, it's one, but, but it's hard to figure out. It's a mystery to it, so it's complex. When we talk about the Trinity, we'll do sermons and Bible studies on the Father. We'll do sermons and Bible studies on the Son. But somehow, for some reason, the Holy Spirit seems to get left out. Or when we do talk about him, we skip all the preliminary stuff and we just start talking about miracles. We talk about the works of the Holy Spirit, but we don't begin with the person of the Holy Spirit. This is so true that books have been written about this. There it is. Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God talking about the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite rappers, ambassador, legendary rapper of the legendary group, The Cross Movement. Years ago, we had a song called Jesus. And on this song, every verse of the song talks about a member of the Trinity. So on the first verse, he talks about the Father. On the second verse, he talks about the Son. And on the third verse, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And in the first two bars of the verse, he highlights this truth that people forget about the Holy Spirit. He starts off the verse, he says, last but not least, the paraclete I speak on. Full deity, but often the people sleep on. The low-key, invisible Holy Spirit who keeps blowing. He gives life through the Holy Spirit we're reborn. He says he's the, he's the low-key, invisible spirit that people sleep on. Him. But the amazing thing about this is we can't even get up in the morning without him. It is through the Holy Spirit that we breathe that we live, that we have our being. But we don't talk about him the way we should, but we're going to talk about him for about the next two months. In order for our church to go where God wants to take our church, in order for us to accomplish the things that God wants us to accomplish, in order for us to live the way God wants us to live, we got to know the Holy Spirit. And we got to know him with intimacy. Why is it important that we know the spirit of God with intimacy? Let me give you an illustration. I've known my wife since 2007. Technically. Well, no. Technically, it would be third grade. But we ain't know, know each other till 2007. 
before me and Jody began officially dating, we were real good friends. We spent a good year getting to know each other. Y'all know that, uh, that infatuation stage that we all go through? You're on the phone all night. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. On three, hang up. <laughs> Shout out to Tyrese. <laughs> Y'all know the song. Go, <laughs> Married folk, listen to it when you get home. <laughs> On the phone all day and night, learning each other. Spending time with each other. Developing a close and intimate friendship. Then we began dating. Then we get engaged. And here we are, over 12 years of marriage. I know Jody more than any other human on this earth. Only one person knows Jody more than me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's it. I know Jody well from our developing relationship that we sparked many years ago in 2007. One of the first things I learned about my wife before she was my wife is that there's a specific color that she does not like. If I was to go to the store, <laughs> actually, let me flip that story. If somebody in this room was to call me one day and say, Brian, you won't believe what I saw today. What you see? I saw Jody at Walmart, and she was purchasing an orange purse. <laughs> With a orange hat to match and some orange tennis shoes and they say Brian I'm telling you what I saw I would not believe it I don't care if they send me a high definition video of Jody with an orange purse and matching orange shoes I would say that's AI that's tech now somebody didn't photoshop that you didn't rig that that ain't my wife buying something orange because I know very early on one of the first conversations we had she made it clear don't ever buy me nothing orange don't even wear nothing orange around me the date will be canceled if you show up with an orange outfit on I knew that from day one she don't do orange so if somebody comes to me and they say I saw your wife wearing orange I immediately know to reject it because I recognize that ain't my wife. I know her so intimately. I know her so deeply that when somebody describes her in a character trait that uh, is opposite of what I know about her, I immediately reject it as not being her. When we view the Holy Spirit, we hear things about the Holy Spirit. People attribute certain things to the Holy Spirit. But we should be immediately willing to see that that's not the Holy Spirit because we know his character. We know his person. Well, let me explain it to you. The scripture says that he is the spirit of truth. That means that he is contrary to the spirit of error. So whenever I walk into a church and I hear false teaching going on, I don't care how many people falling out. I don't care how many people speaking in tongues. I don't care how many people saying they got healed. If the truth is not there, God's spirit is not there. God will never contradict his character. Whoever he is is what his actions is going to match. 
But in the church today, we don't understand the Holy Spirit according to his person and according to his character and according to his nature. So we get deceived. Not only do we attribute things to him that's not him, we don't even recognize him when he shows up. Because we don't know the Holy Spirit, we'll go to the other extreme and we become hyper intellectuals. Everything got to make sense. Everything we got to figure out. Everything has to be scientifically, mathematically breakdownable. It don't work like that when we're dealing with a transcendent God. But when you know the Holy Spirit, you'll see something weird going on. And instead of thinking you losing your mind, you realize that maybe God is at work right now. So we need to get an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. First thing we need to understand about the Holy Spirit off top. Let's just get this out the way. He is not an active force. He is not to be compared to electricity. He is not an inanimate object. He has personality. And not only is he a person, he is a divine person. He's God, period. There, I don't care what the Jehovah Witnesses tell you. I don't care what the Muslims tell you. I don't care what the Hebrew Israelites say. The Holy Spirit of God is Yahweh. There's no way around it. We'll prove that. How do you know that? Because God can only take attributes. That There are certain attributes that only God can claim for himself. There are only titles that only God can claim for himself. For example, the Bible says that God is eternal. He does not have a beginning and he will not have an end. The Bible says that God is omniscient. He's all knowing. The Bible says that God is omnipresent. He is all places at the same time. The Bible says that God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. These are key attributes of the Holy Spirit of of God that nobody else can claim for themselves. Amen. The Bible says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. How many Lords are there? One, the Bible says there is one God. So if the Bible calls somebody else Lord, capital L, then we got to make an interpretive decision. If some, if the Bible's calling somebody God, capital G, we have to make an interpretive decision because these are titles and attributes that belong to God alone. Everybody agree? Okay, well, the Bible says God is eternal. Hebrews 9 and 14 says the Holy Spirit is eternal. The Bible says God is omnipresent. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10 says the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. The Bible says that God is all powerful. Throughout the Bible, God, the Holy Spirit is presented as all powerful. Namely, Psalm 104, verse 30, where he is called the one who created the world. You cannot create the world without being all powerful. The Bible says that God is all knowing. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 says the spirit is all knowing. The Bible says there is one Lord and that is God. However, when you read 2 Corinthians 3 verse 11, it says that the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Acts chapter 5 says that the Holy Spirit is God explicitly. There's no way around it. So the first thing we need to understand about the Holy Spirit is that he's not some inanimate object. He's a person with personality and he's divine. In addition to his deity, I want to talk about his attributes. And as we walk through his attributes, we're going to gradually see that this is not just intellectual theology, but it has application that is supposed to change how we live. Amen. Let me get that first slide up. The Holy Spirit has emotions. The Holy Spirit has emotions. 
Now, I just said the Holy Spirit is God. But then I just said the Holy Spirit has emotions. So what I'm really saying is that God has. Okay, why would I say such a thing? Let me get that verse. Ephesians 4.30. Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says, do not grieve. That word grief is nothing complex about it. It means exactly what it means in English is what it means in Greek. It means to bring sorrow to, to make sad, to cause emotional distress. Let me get Genesis chapter 6. So the Lord was sorry that he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. It's the NLT. Let's go back to Ephesians. In our theology, and when I say our, I'm talking about me because I do this all the time. And this is where I believe the Lord convicted me as I was preparing this message. Here's what I do. And here's probably what you do. When we think about God, we give him two emotions. Joy and anger. <laughs> we don't have no middle ground. We don't have no other categories. Either we bring in joy to God or we didn't tick them off. Either he's happy with us or he's mad at us. That, those are the only two categories we have for God. But when I read Genesis 6 and 6, when I read Ephesians 4.30, and then there's another one in Isaiah 63 and 10. There's this concept of grieving God, grieving his Holy Spirit. He says that he can be made sad. Wow. The God who created you and I with all power in his hands can become saddened by things. What is it that causes him grief? If you look at Ephesians 4 and 30, the context is how we talk to one another. Mm, that's going to be convicting. Ephesians, <clears throat> I'll just read it real quick. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You see the connection? Sin in general grieves God, but the specific sin that he's talking about here is how we talk to one another. He says when you tearing one another down with your words, beating each other up with your speech, he says the Holy Spirit is not just angered by that. He's grieved by it. This means that when we go through our life, y'all, and we commit sins, Understanding that it's not just anger that God is experiencing. He's our loving father. See, we view God as so transcendent where we forget that the Bible says he's a God that's near to us. Deuteronomy 7. This is another thing that makes the Israelite God distinct from the other gods. He's one who's near to his people. Did you know that in Islam, they're not allowed to call Allah their father? Too transcendent, but God is so complex in his nature where he's transcendent and near at the same time. 
He's far away, so you're not on his level, but he's close enough for you to get to know him. He's a loving father, therefore he's not detached from his children emotionally. If you have children, you know that when your children make a bad decision, there's multiple emotions you're going to go through. You're going to deal with some anger, but there's going to be some hurt there that you feel. Where we get that from? <laughs> I thought we was made in God's image. Well, we just, we learned that. We, as early as life began, we have emotions. We come out the womb crying. As image bearers of God, this grief that we experience is something that God gives us to express ourselves. And he does it himself. Now, here's one of the most unfortunate things about grieving God's spirit. Look at what it says after that. It says the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. He says, look at who you're grieving. You're grieving the one that's actually sealing you. Y'all know what that means? It means he's locking you up as a promise that you will one day experience and inherit eternal life. He says, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. He is, his spirit lives inside of you, but he says he sealed you with his Holy Spirit so that you can't lose your salvation. Once you're born again, you don't become unborn. Either you're born again or you're not. But once you're in there, he says that the Holy Spirit seals you for what day? The day of redemption. That's the day where God is going to resurrect us from the dead and give us glorified bodies. And those who are alive will be raptured. He says he sealed us for that day. So he's saying if the spirit of God has sealed and affirmed and guaranteed our salvation, why would we go around grieving him? Why? It's similar to going around trying to cause grief to your best friend who ain't did you no wrong. It says God's spirit is inside of us. And when we live contrary to him, causes him grief. I believe this is probably why when we sin, you know, you ever do something wrong. It could even be minor. You have a bad thought or you say something to somebody that you know wasn't right or you had an attitude with somebody who ain't deserve it and you get that that feeling. Typically, we call it conviction. But perhaps because God's spirit is living inside of us and he's being grieved, we start to feel the grief. That's how you know you're born again, because the Holy Spirit will let you know when you didn't went off track. So let that conviction encourage you, not discourage you. The world can go off, do whatever they want to do and have no conscience about it, no remorse about it. But the people of God are supposed to feel bad when we do bad. That's the mark of God's spirit upon your life. So the Holy Spirit is a personal being. He has emotions. Amen. What else? Let me get that next slide. Mm, he can be lied to. Oh, man. <laughs> the spirit of truth can somehow be lied to. Doesn't mean he can be deceived because he knows all things. But what it's saying is that men can attempt to trick him. <laughs> the futility of that statement, right? He can be lied to. Why do I say that? Let's look at Acts 5. Now, this verse is one of the most sobering passages in the New Testament. Let's pick it up at verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. Parents, do not name your son Ananias. 
Don't name your daughter no Sapphira, man. You don't, you don't want that. Says they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, let's just explain what's going on here. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, right? Question is, why did they do that? If you read chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, it says that all those who were wealthy took their property and sold it and took the money from the property and laid the money at the apostles' feet so that the apostles would take the money that was at their feet and distribute it to all the poor people in the congregation so that there would be no lack. Sadly, many people in the church have abused that verse and say, oh, we lay money at the apostles' feet so that we can sow a seed and make them rich. That's not what that verse is talking about. The money was supposed to be used for the poor who was in the congregation. That's just what it says. So they laid the money at the apostles' feet, and all the proceeds were supposed to go to the poor. Amen? Chapter 5 starts, and Ananias and Sapphira, they sold the piece of property like the other wealthy people. But with his wife's knowledge, meaning she knew what was going on, he kept back for himself some of the money, some of the proceeds, and brought only a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see the deception? Now, what this means is, you got all these people in the congregation who are humbly giving their all. Ananias says, I want to pretend like I'm one of them. Like I'm committed to the community like them, but in actuality, I'm going to keep some of this in my pocket. I'm going to be a fraud, right? Let's look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Says Peter knew that this brother was cheating. It doesn't say that somebody came and told Peter this, but Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk about later in the series, (laughs) he knew that there was something shady going on. And he gives him a question. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He attributed what Ananias did to who? The devil. Why would he do that? Mm, We're going to explain that shortly. Let me get the next verse. While it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? In other words, you ain't, nobody forced you to sell anything. You could have kept it if this was the issue. You went out your way to be a thief. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And I thought he lied to the Holy Spirit. Oh, do you see how it snuck up in there? Now he says he lied to God. He's using the terms interchangeable because the spirit is God. So first he says, Satan filled your heart to do it. The devil made me do it, right? But in verse four, he says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And here we see the divine mystery of sin. Some sin, and, and on the one hand, it is attributed to our flesh. That's verse four. But on the other hand, it's contributed and attributed to the work of Satan. That's verse three. This means that when we are dealing with sin and bondage, we can only deal with the flesh part. 
Because that's only part of the problem. We got to also deal with the spiritual part that is intensifying the lusts that are already in the flesh. When you're dealing with the flesh, you can study the word and you can have accountability and you can get counseling and you can take good notes and you can listen to every sermon. That's going to help you deal with that flesh. But when you got a Satan problem, you're going to need everything I just said and you also going to need some fasting. You're going to need some prayer. You're going to need some hands laid on you. You're going to need some extra stuff because it's a spiritual problem you're dealing with. Now, we assume that Ananias and Sapphira were unbelievers because of what they did. But if you look at the context, we have no reason to assume that. In all likelihood, these were two believers in the church who lied (laughs) to God's Holy Spirit. Now, I didn't read the rest of the story, but it says that both of them dropped dead as a result of this. God made them immediately fall dead because of what they did, which begs the question, why did God deal with this so severely? Here's one of the reasons why. Because lying is a satanic trait. Let me say that again. Lying, slander, deception, not telling the truth, falsehood, withholding the truth, lies of omission. Those are all traits of the demonic. Listen, Jesus said in John chapter 8, when he's arguing with the Jews, he says, you are of your father, the devil, for he was a murderer from the beginning. After that, he says, he does not stand in the truth because the truth is not in him. Then he says, whenever he lies, he speaks from his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Whenever I see somebody operating in falsehood, whenever I see somebody who just can't tell the truth, whenever I see somebody lying about stuff, y'all know how we do somebody will wrong us, and then we'll, we'll go to everybody saying what the other person did. But we don't tell the whole truth about what we did in that situation because we want to paint ourselves to be heroes. We're actually lying by omission. Whenever I see somebody operating in falsehood, I already know I'm dealing with something demonic. I already know it is because that comes from Satan. Did you know that the word devil in Greek, diabolos, literally means liar, slanderer, false accuser? It comes from the devil. So that's one of the reasons I believe that God dealt with it so severely. Now, what do we take from this? Tell the truth. (laughs) Quit lying. (laughs) Quit lying on people. Quit slandering people. Quit withholding information. Stop. Paul says, stay away from falsehood. Always tell the truth. Let me tell you how serious lying is. When you get home, read Revelation chapter 22. It's a short chapter. In that chapter, It's going to talk about those who are in the kingdom, and it's going to talk about those who are outside of the kingdom. Those who are outside of the kingdom, meaning those who are in the lake of fire, he describes them based on how they live. He says the sorcerers, those who commit abominations, the adulterers, the murderers. Then he says the liars will have their portion in the lake of fire. Wow. He's saying that those who live a life of deception, proving that they are of a different spirit, the spirit of the devil. So the spirit of God can be lied to. Now, I don't know how electricity can be lied to, right? I don't know no tree that can be lied to. This tells me that the Holy Spirit is a person. We almost done. Let's get the two more attributes. Let me get the next one. 
He makes decisions. The Holy Spirit has a will. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, it says that, our whole, that the Holy Spirit is actually who distributes the spiritual gifts according to his will. He makes decisions. That implies intellect. That implies that he has the ability to discern right from wrong and to make choices. Let's go to Acts 13. I love the book of Acts, man, because it had these little subtle truths about God that are like nuggets of gold if you really grab onto them. Verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Now let's just stop there for a minute. Acts is written after the resurrection. And he said, in the church, this ain't Old Testament. He said, in that church, you ain't just have teachers. He said you had prophets in that church. Now, we're going to talk about that later in the series, but I just want to wet your palate for one second and say there are prophetic voices in the New Covenant church. Don't allow false teachers to cause you to not believe that. Now, there were in that church prophets and teachers. Now, he's going to give you the names. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, little known fact. That word Niger means dark, so we know that Simeon was one of the earliest black leaders in the Christian church. And not, not like, you know, North African. Y'all know how we try to, <laughs> they try to make all the black people in the Bible like the light-skinned black people. No, the, the man name means dark skin. Okay, he, he looked like, like me, Cap, Cheryl, like one of us. You feel me? <laughs> Brother was highly melanated. Word up. Simeon was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. It's another African city. Just, I'm just saying. I know it ain't Black History Month yet, but I'm just saying. Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So y'all, somebody count how many people that is. Two, three, four. How many we got? Five? All right, that's five people, right? Okay, let me get the next verse. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Don't say there was in no church service. This lifestyle Christianity. We wait till we get here to want to worship God. It said they were just living life. They worshiped the Lord and they fasted. It's just what they did as a lifestyle. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said. <laughs> this new this Old Testament is New Testament. I thought he only spoke to Ezekiel, Isaiah, and all of them. This New Testament, post-resurrection, the Holy Spirit spoke something. I don't care what nobody tell you, man. Listen, the Holy Spirit is here to speak to his people. And he's not just speaking through the Bible. Y'all know how I feel about this book. I give my life for this book. But I know that that is not the only way that God's Spirit speaks to his people. He will speak to them in different ways. It does not contradict what's in the book, but he can speak outside of the book. The Holy Spirit spoke. That means he's a person who has intellect. But look at what he says. Set apart for me. Separate for me. Consecrate somebody for me. Set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them to do. The Holy Spirit made a choice for the church. Five people there 
Holy Spirit said, mm-mm. Two people you need to pick. Shout out to my son for ad-libbing me. He said, pick two people and set them aside for the work that I've called them to do. The Holy Spirit just made a decision, correct? But the decision he made was for the church and what he was calling them to do. This means that one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to help us make choices. One of the main reasons our lives tend to take detours and left turns, and right turns, and U-turns, and going backwards, is because we refuse to acknowledge the Holy Spirit and the choices we make. Proverbs 3 and 5 says this way, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not upon your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall what? Direct your paths. That's all you see happening here in the book of Acts. We don't make choices involving the Holy Spirit. We just do what we want to do. We want to date who we want to date. We want to go to school where we want to go to school. We want to move where we want to move. We want to go to church where we want to go to church. We make decisions based on our own will and desires. What's the problem with that? Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So if I'm always following my heart, I'm going to keep making bad choices. He says, follow the Holy Spirit. I don't care how major or how minor the decisions is in your life. You need to consider what the Holy Spirit is saying. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here, here's, here's where I want to challenge us a little bit. Because many of us, you're going to take what I just said, and you're going to go home today. With all your decisions laid out, and you're going to write them on paper, and you're going to lay them at Jesus' feet, and you're going to say, I want the Spirit of God to guide these decisions, right? Amen, hallelujah. But I want you to read this passage closely. How many people was there? How many? Verse 2 says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said to the group. We don't want to talk about that. We won't. Oh, God told me. Oh, God told me. Oh, God told me. God told you and he didn't tell nobody else. Mm, I don't know. I don't know if Spirit of God worked like that. It says that the Spirit spoke to everybody who was there. This is my will for the church. Set aside Saul and Barnabas. He ain't pull Niger aside and say, I want you to go tell everybody else that, that we're going to. No, no, he spoke to the whole group. Here's a mistake that we make as Christians. We discern the will of God in isolation, not in community. That's bad business. I understand that we need to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. I understand that when I stand before him, I ain't going to have nobody else to vouch for me. I understand that we're supposed to have a private prayer life, all of that. I agree and affirm all of that. I understand that there are some things that God will tell you to do that other folk will say you crazy for it. But what I am saying is that we need to normalize discerning the will of God in the group of godly, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians who will say right or tell you when you're wrong. And I just look at our church. The only reason we even in this location <laughs> is because we discern the, the will of the Spirit in community. I ain't just get up one day and was like, hey, y'all, we should just uproot the church from Cleveland Heights and go to East Cleveland. I didn't say that. We got together with the group, and as we got together with the team of the leaders on our board, we was able to discern what the Spirit of God was doing in our midst. All of us should live life that way. Even the sermons I preach, 
I keep it within the community. Just last night, there was a sub-bullet point on my sermon outline that I felt like the Bible was saying, but I wasn't completely sure. So you know what I did last night? I sent a group, a video chat to all my pastor friends. It's about five of us. And we had a little conversation in the group. And these brothers say, you might not want to preach that yet. It needs some more studying. So you know what I did? I submitted to it. I'm not, because if all y'all brothers got the Holy Ghost. So if none of y'all saw it the way I saw it, that lets me know I'm probably in error. So I let it go. We got to discern the will of God. Listen, it requires humility to do it. Because we don't want to do what we want to do. Because you know, God told me, God told me, God told me this, God told me that. But nobody else says that. We need to humble ourselves and just take a risk to see if, does anybody else in the faith agree with this? <laughs> the answer is no, perhaps it's not the spirit. Let's read this one more time. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Oh, my goodness. For the work that I have called them to do. Wow. It is the spirit of God who calls men into ministry. The spirit said, Set aside Barnabas and Paul, not for the work that the father called them to. He says the work that I called them to. Let me encourage you for a minute. Your appointment into ministry don't come from no man. Man cannot appoint you to ministry. Man cannot remove you from ministry. It is the spirit of God that ordains people. It is the spirit of God who assigns people roles in the church. It is the spirit of God who appoints men and women to serve in the local body. Man cannot do that. All man can do is recognize what the Holy Spirit is doing and get behind it. How do I know that? Look at verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Wasn't their idea. The Holy Spirit did it. The church discerned it was the Holy Spirit, and they got behind the Holy Spirit. Well, Brian, weren't you just ordained last year? I mean, last month? <laughs> didn't you just, didn't we just drive out the warren and you had a beautiful ceremony of everybody laying hands on you? And listen, the Alliance understand they were not ordaining me. They were recognizing that the Spirit of God already ordained me. Paul put it this way, Galatians 1. He says, God, who was pleased to reveal his son in me, set me apart from my mother's womb to be called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. All the alliance was doing was saying, we see what the spirit of God is doing in this man's life, and we discern that as God, and we agree. Now, let's get behind him and appoint him into the local ministry. No man can take you out of it. No man can put you in it, so don't go around trying to please no human. Please the one who can assign you and remove you. Hallelujah. We got one more attribute and we're going to go home. He is omnipresent. Mm. What does it mean to be omnipresent? It means to be at all places at the same time. This means that the spirit of God can be in Cleveland at Livingstone's church. And he can be down the street at First Missionary Baptist Church. And he could be overseas on the mission field. And he can be in all these different places at the exact same time because he is omnipresent. 
Now, we know this about God, the Father, but we tend to struggle when it comes to the Holy Spirit. So let's see where I'm getting this from. Let's look at Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, stop. Did you see the connection? The spirit of God is equated with the presence of God. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? Now, we teach that the Bible says that when a person is born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live where? Inside of us. In the Psalms, it says that the spirit of God is equal to God's what? Presence. So that means that if God's spirit is inside of us, that means God's presence is inside of us. So why do we keep praying for God to give us his presence then? Something fishy. Something ain't adding up. The math ain't mathing to me. My Bible and your Bible tells me, are your bodies not the temple of the Holy Spirit? What was the temple in the Old Testament? It was the place where the presence of Yahweh dwelled. While we going around praying for God's presence, he's already in us. We can pray to experience it more, which typically means we got to get more of this sin up off of us. The only reason we don't experience his presence is because we got too much worldliness attached to us. But the spirit of God is near to us already. We ain't got to pray for his presence. It's already here. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? Next verse. He's, now, these are all hypothetical hyperboles, purposeful exaggerations. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. <laughs> if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol could mean the grave, but it could also mean the spiritual underworld of the departed death, de the departed dead. Next verse. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me. Wow, glory to God. And your right hand shall hold me. What is the psalmist saying? No matter where I go, I can't hide from God's spirit. This means that when I sin against him, and I want to stop coming to the local gathering or I want to avoid all my Christian friends or I want to stop praying or I want to stop reading my Bible. He like you still can't get away from him. <laughs> He's still close by. He says that, that, that even if you try to run, the spirit of God is right there. And you know why? Because he loves us. Even in our rebellion, he's still right there with us. Well, how is the Holy Spirit following us and being with us when we're in sin? Because he knows that we can't repent without him. <laughs> if he leave us to ourselves, we're going to stay in sin. So he's like, I got to follow them wherever they go. They walking in adultery, I'm going to come right with them. They selling drugs, I'm going to come right with them. They getting drunk, I'm going to come right with them. They smoking weed, I'm going to be right beside them. Because if I don't follow them, they're going to die in this sin. Glory to God. He says you can't get away from him no matter how far you try to run. He going to hunt you down. If you belong to him, he'll whoop your behind until you repent. But he won't leave you by yourself. Even there, your hand shall lead me. 
Your right hand shall hold me. Look at the look at the nurturing aspect of verse 10. That means when we're going through pain. When we're going through suffering. When we get them symptoms and we're scared to go to the doctor because we don't want the bad news. He says the spirit of God is right there. He says even there. Your right hand shall hold me. He says you ain't got to be fearful of anything. Understand the great commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the age. Jesus went back to heaven at that moment. So who is he talking about when he said, I will be with you? He's talking about the blessed Holy Spirit. Be encouraged. I don't care what's laying before you, whatever's frightening you, whatever's making you anxious, whatever is making you fearful, whatever bondage of sin that you're dealing with, understand that God's spirit is living inside of you. And wherever you go, (laughs) the Holy Spirit going to follow you. And just like the psalmist said, his right hand will lead you and uphold you let's pray father we thank you jesus for the blessed holy spirit he's god he's the almighty he's a person he has emotions he has power he guides us in our decision making He can be offended when we sin against him. But despite all that, he's merciful. And Jesus, we thank you for him. Father, would you give us greater intimacy with the Holy Spirit as we walk through this series? Can we get to know your spirit better? Can we can we rise up with the Holy Spirit? Can we go through our day to day with the Holy Spirit? Can we end our evenings talking to the Holy Spirit? Can we serve in the spirit and power of of your spirit, Lord God. We want to know him more. We want to know him. We don't want to forget about him. We don't want to neglect him. We don't want to sleep on him. We want to know him with intimacy. Would you do it for us, Father? Pray for those who are struggling with bondage to sin. That through the power of your spirit, you will break those chains. Pray for those who are dealing with fear and anxiety. Worried about the future. Would you remind them that your spirit is going before them? And that you promise to uphold them. God, help us. To live lives. Filled with the Holy Spirit. So that we might bear fruit for the kingdom. We'll be mindful to give your name all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.